Good morning, church. Today's scripture is found in Mark 12, 28 to 34. Please stand for the reading of God's word. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher, you have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is God's word. You may be seated. All right. Hey, good morning, everyone. Good to see you all here at church. Uh, so glad uh, to be uh, back with you. Last week, I heard uh, Steve was here and did a great job just as far as opening God's word with you guys. And uh, grateful just to have partners in, in ministry and friends to be able to, to jump in and, and share God's word as well. Um, <clears throat> so I'm Stephen, by the way. I'm excited to be in Mark with you all. And let's get to it. And we are continuing our study in the Gospel of Mark. And, and this morning, getting to the issue of the heart. Getting to the issue of the heart, that's kind of really what I want to point your, your eyes and, and your heart to as we consider uh, this passage in Mark. And it's a little bit of a change up because the last few weeks, actually, even if you look back at what Steve covered last week in, in Mark 12, you see that there's a lot of conflict happening, uh, especially in last week's passage. In fact, I was just rereading this uh, early this week and just noticed even in uh, Mark 12, 24, it says, Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? It ends with, you are wrong, in verse 27. Like, like Jesus is kind of calling them out, being very confrontational, being very bold in the way that he's interacting with these religious leaders. And this morning is a bit of a break, because at this point, the Pharisees have been seething. They've been focused on setting Jesus up, destroying him, trapping him in all kinds of ways, undermining him. And today's a break, because we get a different religious leader with a different approach. He sees things a little differently. He's been watching. And it's possible you may relate a little bit more with this conversation this morning than maybe you have with the last few weeks. In fact, the issue at the heart of this passage really has to do with love. And we're talking about the kind of love that is the top priority and how when you love something or someone, it affects everything in your life from the top down. Um, you ever noticed before your passion or your, your love for someone impacts areas of your life uh, in ways that you would never expect, right? So you, you see love effects on maybe a, a single friend who starts to date someone, right? They used to be dependable, right? You used to be able to count on them for camping, for late night, talk a run, 11 p.m., drop by their house. They're not doing anything anyway, right? It's no problem. Let's hang out with my single friend. He's never busy, and then he starts going on a few dates, starts to get a girlfriend, poof, right? Nowhere to be found, right? He just ghosts everybody. 
Or, or maybe you've even experienced this in your own life, right? You start to get into a relationship with someone or start to have a friendship or a group of friends, and they happen to have a passionate dietary perspective, right? And, and so you never saw yourself going organic, but here you are, right, watching the documentaries, you're now at every farmer's market asking about right, locally sourced eggs, and you're putting things like collagen peptides and kale in your smoothies, right? Like, this is like, who am I, right? This has affected me in all kinds of ways. It happened to Katie and I when we first met as well, right? I never, guys, listen, I, I never once thought in all my life, like, I just need to go out and dance. <laughs> that thought never went through my mind. Like, on a Friday night, you know what I need to do tonight? I need to get out there and just dance. Just kind of huddle up and put our shoes and purses in the middle of the circle. Just dance, right? I never thought that before. And then I met Katie, who loved to dance. She was a ballerina for 15 years, loved dancing. And after a while, guessed how we spent our, our time. Isn't this true of us, right? Like our greatest love, the things that we are most passionate about, they have a trickle-down effect. It starts with this, this person or this concept or or perhaps even God in your life, and it has this trickle-down effect in your life and mine. It affects how we spend our money. It affects how we spend our time. You interact with people in a different perspective. And now before you get too excited or before you tune me out, we're actually not talking about a romantic hallmark type of, of love this morning. I think the Bible has a lot of things to say about that too, but we're talking about a love for God, a passion for our Creator, and, and as your pastor, this is one of my greatest prayers for us as a congregation, for, for our staff, for my life personally, that your love for God would be such a priority in your life, that you would increase your affection for Jesus every day. That's what I want for our church. But realize it doesn't just stop there. And this passage, it shows us how our love for God impacts the rest of our lives especially our love for people, all people, all people, th those who are lovable and likable and those who maybe historically you have something against, right? And maybe that's the hardest takeaway for us this morning. Maybe there's a group of people who you have had a hard time showing love for, but the Bible says, yes, even that group of people, even those folks, those, those people who vote that way or, or look a certain way, God has called us to love him and to love others. So let's get to the text. And we see this encounter. It begins with a scribe. And it's a question that starts this chain of events. Um, the scribe, and we're going to talk about who he is and, and what he asks. Verse 28 says this, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. Remember, Right before this, Jesus has been interacting with the Sadducees. They've been fighting. They've been arguing back and forth. And, and it says this, and seeing, the scribes seeing that Jesus had answered them well, asked him this question. So, so last week, again, our friend Steve preached, covered the first part of this conversation. The Sadducees are quizzing Jesus. They're engaging him. They are fired up. And then we see in verse 20, 28, one guy kind of come to the foreground and ask a question of his own. Now, before we get to the question, let's talk about the questioner, the, the scribe. And just to remind you, a scribe is an expert. He's an Old Testament expert, right? So he's probably memorized the Torah. He's, he's like a lawyer combined with a theologian. 
And his job is to not only write down the law, but to interpret the law in many ways. He has a lot of authority. He has a lot of power. He has, got, has a lot of influence. And he's trained in the art of interpretation of Scripture. Now, up until this point in Mark, you know and I know that every single time Mark talks about these religious leaders, he paints them in a bad light, right? They're guys that, that aren't, they're not really... Um, uh, earnest and truthful in the way that they approach Jesus. They always have another agenda. And so whether it's the, the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the scribes, they come up, Mark paints them in a bad light, and they're never coming in friendly. But as you notice, this exchange feels a little different. It feels a little bit more honest. And, and I think this scribe, it, it doesn't say in the scripture, but it, it, it insinuates greatly that the scribe has been watching, perhaps all day, this, this interaction. He's been in the back of the classroom, kind of just taking it in. He's been observing and listening, and, and I think he's probably making some insightful observations. Over and over again, he's watched religious leaders roll up, ready to fight. They throw the first verbal punch. Jesus responds brilliantly. Religious leaders try to trap Jesus, and Jesus steps aside and, and avoids the trap. He handles the issue expertly in an expert way. And this scribe has been watching. He's been, uh, he's been watching this happen over and over again, and he's come to a conclusion. He, he's realizing that Jesus is different. This guy has something unique. His answers are thoughtful. His answers are amazing. There's, it's not just the kind of the same regurgitated stuff over and over again that he's heard over the years in the temple. And so, listen, church, I would just encourage you, before we even get to the question... <laughs> Maybe your takeaway is this this morning, to consider the posture and the role of the scribe in this story. In this passage, we get one of the most theologically clear and impactful statements throughout the entire gospel, and it starts because this scribe has the humility to ask a great question. Um, we, we never will outgrow the ability to ask questions. We, we, never, we never should. Questions aren't for newbies. They aren't just for school-aged kids, right? Like I recently was at a church uh, leadership seminar, and it was led by this guy named Dave Kraft. He's, a, um, he's been a lead pastor. He's been in ministry for many years, um, and he started when he was in his 20s, and he's held positions all throughout the church. Now, Dave is 83 years old. He's leading this seminar. There's probably 50 people in the room. And do you know what? is obvious about Dave and his approach. What stood out about Dave is his incessant desire to keep growing. You could tell by the way that he asked questions. He, he's pursuing this growth mindset, even in his 80s, as a follower of Jesus. And so, guys, don't underestimate the domino effect of being a humble learner. This scribe receives clarity. Right, this surrounding crowd receives a powerful reminder. We ourselves, 2,000 years removed, are still talking about this exchange. And in your life, in your walk with the Lord, are you willing to ask questions? Are you willing to raise your hand and, and ask for help in your spiritual community at the risk of being scoffed at or overlooked? And I think we can all be a little bit more like this scribe. So he sees Jesus, he senses there's something to learn, and so he asks the question. Let's get to that question. Number two, the question is, is simply this. Verse 28, which commandment 
is the most important of all? Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus, which commandment is the most important one? Which commandment is the greatest commandment? If, if you're uh, in a sports, these types of questions are kind of fun to bat around and sometimes impossible to answer. Uh, those of you who, who kind of like traditional sports, like who is the GOAT, right? The greatest of all time. And so in, in football, you might say Tom Brady, right? Uh, if you're a basketball fan, maybe it's LeBron. If you're a golfer, maybe it's Tiger Woods. But here's the thing. It has to do with eras, too, right? Like, if you're in a sports, you realize you talk to somebody from an older generation, their answer might be, like, Jim Brown and Michael Jordan and, and Jack Nicholas, right? That's totally different answers depending on who you saw play and how you would answer who is the greatest. And this is kind of the question this scribe asks. Like, what is the GOAT? Who is the GOAT? Who is the greatest of all time? And he asks this in, question, in relationship to the law. Now, um, funny enough, we don't get excited about the law, right? I, actually, this week I got home from a trip, and uh, in my mailbox was a jury summons. And I was like, this is not exciting. <laughs> I'm not looking forward to this. I, I'm immediately thinking about, like, how do I get out of this? I know it's probably wrong, and I, I probably need to do my jury duty, and, and I will, but it's like, it doesn't excite me, right? Like, there's nothing exciting about the law in that way. And it just, reality is, is we don't think about our laws very often, the state laws or federal laws. And, and, and so uh, think about that for yourself. Like, how would you answer the question, which law is most important? I don't know. Like, don't murder people? That's an important one, right? Like, don't steal stuff, Right? Don't cheat on your taxes. In fact, I, I think that most of the time, we actually think more about the punitive consequence of breaking that law as opposed to the law itself, right? That's probably actually where our mind goes. How much am I going to have to pay for that speeding ticket, right? Like, what do I have to do in order to get out of fill in the blank? But for the Pharisees and the scribes, this would have been a common and relevant discussion. Which law is the greatest? They focused on the Old Testament all the time. I mentioned this already. They memorized the Torah. They were passionate about the laws. Now, some of us, uh, most of us have heard the, the Ten Commandments. Uh, some of you have probably memorized the Ten Commandments. But here's what these guys would do, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. They would take these Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. They would break down those commandments into 600 other laws that would kind of splinter off and describe how do we best keep these commandments. That's how passionate they were about the law. So, for example, if the command is like, do not murder, they broke it down and put it on a spectrum. All right, so like on one side is, is murder of a human being in cold blood with motive, with, with some kind of weapon, right? And on the other side is I was pet-sitting my neighbor's dog, and the dog choked on a bone and did not make it through the night, right? So uh, like, wh where are we culpable on that spectrum? And so what the scribe is asking is unique because he's, he's asking a question that if you could sum up the entire law in a one command, what would it be? So again, the question and the questioner has some relevance here. We have a thoughtful guy asking a thoughtful question and so Jesus answers him thoughtfully. Again, I just, I, I want to say again, if you have real questions, 
if you have the humility to ask those questions, Jesus wants those questions. He wants to hear from you. If you have have real questions, you are welcome in this community of church. We would love to help find those answers with you through community, through pointing back to Scripture. On the flip side, maybe you're not asking for questions. I would just also encourage you, if you are around people who are seeking spiritual things, who are asking questions, man, would you be patient with them? Um, Jesus' posture, it's, it's a great reminder for us as well. Give people around you the time and space to grow spiritually. Don't roll your eyes in missional community when someone's like, hey, where is this book in the Bible, right? Remember, we all started off somewhere like that, and so we have to guard our hearts against being cynical and encourage good questions. So Jesus answers him in verse 29, and we get the first answer. The first answer says this in verse 29. The most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Uh, Jesus, by the way, he's going to give kind of a two-for-one here, a bit of a bonus answer. And it's very insightful. But what he starts with is he starts by quoting something called the Shema. It's a, it's a prayer that would have been well known to, to Jews. In fact, everyone say that word aloud with me. Repeat after me, Shema. Shema. Nicely done. Great. You guys now know a foreign language. That's great. Which is, it's found in Deuteronomy 6. It's, it's a prayer that, again, every good Hebrew, every Jew would have prayed every day. It would have kind of been like the Old Testament equivalent to the Lord's Prayer that we actually went through this morning. And the Shema, it grounded their faith, and it affirmed how their God, uh, Yahweh, was different than all other gods because Yahweh was the one true God, right? Like, he wasn't like this polytheistic uh, approach to Egyptian gods or to gods that were, were pagan. Yahweh was the one true God. And so Jesus uses the Shema to say, hey, I'm going to answer this question, and I'm going to answer it this way. This is the most important one. It's a love for God. That's the greatest commandment. And it's not just a general love. In fact, he breaks it down. He says in every area of your life and being, it's to love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. I hope you realize how all-encompassing this love is. It's easy to say, but it really is the whole enchilada. Right? It's the whole thing. This isn't some weekend fling. This is not a new interest or hobby. My, my wife has poked fun at me for years about how, you know, if you go to my house, I have a junk drawer, right? Maybe you do too. And in that junk drawer is the remnants of all kinds of, of like hobbies and things that I've been into the last like 20 years of, of marriage. And so like, like you open that drawer and you see rock climbing shoes and like guitar picks and, and mountain biking equipment. I'm sorry, Ryan. It's, just, it's in that drawer. But uh, look, the summer was weird because I, I was super into puzzles. I haven't done a puzzle in like two months now, I realize. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is now one of those like hobbies that I've picked up and sat back down. And look, we fizzle out. I get it. All of us get into things for a while. And Jesus says to answer and obey this command, this is not a hobby that you try out for a while. You have to be all in. Now, some of the commentators will will kind of break down each category. And maybe you've heard of that sermon before. 
as well. How do, how do you love God with all your mind? Like, how do you engage him intellectually? Or, or how do you, how do you uh, engage him with your heart? Like, everybody needs a soulmate, right? So God's your soulmate. Or, or what, there's no problem with that angle, but I really don't want to do that this morning. Because the thing is, is I don't think that Jesus is simply describing four different ways that we approach God and our affection for God. I think what he's talking about is he's talking about the totality of who you are. He's saying, you know what? Whatever makes you you, that's how you need to approach your love and passion for the Lord. He's talking more about the sum than its parts, and it's about what is first in your life. It's what's the top priority in your life. Does God have that spot for you? Listen, if we're not careful, I think we can default, though, when we read this passage and break up our heart and compartmentalize our affections for God. And so we can do this. Maybe this is even your default over the years. We see this half-heartedness in all of our relationships, right? Like with our kids, with our spouses and our friends and our parents, we aren't really built to love someone and not hold something back. We usually do. In fact, it's impossible to love someone and sustain a complete love for that person or for that thing, mind, body, soul type of love. Maybe you can do it for an hour or two. Maybe early on in a relationship, you can maintain that for like a month. But after a while, you, you realize, like, I got other things that I'm interested in as well. And while I'm not talking about intimacy, in every area of our heart, we are half-hearted lovers. We only give a part of ourselves. And yet this is exactly what God is asking for. He's asking for everything, all of us, every part of our life pointed in affection towards him and towards his will. And so this is his answer. What is the greatest commandment? Well, it's to love God with all that you are, and everything will flow from that. I mentioned this earlier but if I, if I really love Katie, I mean, if I'm truly into this woman, that's, it's not enough for me just to express my affection and love and buy her gifts and so on and so forth. At some point, I need to have a conversation with her and find out what interests you. What gets you really excited? What makes you tick? What makes your heart sing? And so I have to know those things. And because of that, that impacts the way that I then spend my time. So it is with God. It is the first and foremost desire of your heart to love him, and then you want to act in a way that brings him joy. You want to love the things that God loves. And so the rules and the laws of the Old Testament are there to unpack for us who love God and tell us how would we do that. If we want to love him, this is what it looks like. What's the most important commandment? Love God with everything, with every fiber of your being. But Jesus doesn't leave it just there. He has this bonus answer as well. He has a second answer. The second answer comes in verse 31. The second is this. I got to imagine, too, the scribes are like, I didn't ask for a second, but I guess here it comes. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Jesus gives the first and primary greatest commandment, love God. He then follows up by quoting another Old Testament passage, Leviticus 19. For the Israelites, when it spoke of loving their neighbor, for them, this would have meant their fellow countrymen. 
That's how they would have heard it. They heard, I only need to love other Israelites. That's how I would define neighbor. If you're not an Israelite, well, then maybe we can hang out, but I don't have any, I don't have any uh, a thing that I have to give you. I'm not, I'm not uh, required of, of any kind of affection for you. Listen, if you know anything about Jesus, know that he radically changes this. This is completely different. You can read all about it in Luke 10. Fascinating story. Another scribe comes up to Jesus and he says, hey, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus is you know, really good at this sort of thing. He sits back and says, well, what do the scriptures say? And so the scribe says, who, again, who's an expert in the Torah, he says, love God, love others. Is that kind of right? And Jesus says, bingo. It doesn't say bingo in the Bible. That's just, I, I did that. But then it says that this scribe, this attorney, pushes forward and says, well, how do you define other people? How do you define others? Who is my neighbor? Who exactly are we talking about? At that point in Luke 10, Jesus responds by sharing the story that you probably heard that we refer to as the Good Samaritan. Basically, let me just run through that real fast. A Jewish man is traveling on a road, doing some business. He gets beat up on the road, gets left for dead. It's a, it's a sketchy road, right? So don't, don't travel alone, by the way, right? He gets beat up. He gets robbed, left for dead. And then a series of three guys walk by on the street. The first two guys are exactly the kind of guys you think would stop. One's kind of a pastor. Another guy is kind of a community leader, okay? These people are, are kind of the good people in society as far as how they're seen. And surely these guys will stop to help these guys. They'll have pity and, and do the right thing, but they don't do the right thing. They, in fact, they cross over to the other side of the street to avoid interacting with him. And then a third guy comes and encounters this, this man. And here's the plot twist. The man who gets beat up is a Jew. The guy who stops, the third guy, is a Samaritan. Now, historically, Jews and Samaritans hated one another. Deep racism, deep cultural bias, lots of issues, right? But what happens in Luke 10? The Samaritan sees this guy. He has compassion on him. He helps him to the ER. He leaves his credit card on file. He says, I'll pay the whole bill and follows up again on the way back into town. Jesus tells a story in Luke 10, and he brings everyone back and asks, who, who is my neighbor? That's the question you had? Well, who's the most neighborly guy to this guy in the street? Was it the pastor? Was it the city leader? No, it was the Samaritan, right? This, this guy that no one saw coming, this guy who overcame uh, his mental blocks, who overcame cultural bias, who overcame a history of racism in his family, he was the one who was neighborly. And Jesus says in Luke 10, that's the example. Go and be a neighbor like that. Go love others in the same way. And so this is a huge shift. And as Christians, this speaks to us today as well, right? Like we're, we're called to love everyone, everyone in the same way. Not just those who vote like us, who, who look like us, not with those who, those who have respectable sins and we kind of enjoy hanging out with them because we have interests together. Jesus says the love that we have for God, it calls us to a love for those who are even radically different than us, even those who would be your enemies. And at, at this point, I think we can get really creative like maybe have you ever heard someone say before, or maybe you've said this yourself, like, I don't have to love them. I don't have to like them. 
I just have to love them, right? And that's kind of a creative way to get around it a little bit, right? You know, I, I love them, but I don't have to like them. Now, I realize that probably comes from a decent place, a place where you're trying your best. Many of you have difficult people in your life that you are called to love. And I realize it's hard. There's history and there's, there's people who uh, are, are, it's complicated, right? Like you love them in one area of your life, but it's, 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 it's kind of toxic and, and even borderline abusive in other areas of your life. And maybe they've wounded you. Maybe they've hurt you or betrayed you. And so I realize saying this is not just a, a flippant statement. This is like really hard. And, and Jesus talking about love for others, by the way, does not mean you have to be a doormat. Okay, listen, listen, healthy boundaries are important. Sometimes you need to kindly cut people out. I, I think that's okay at times, it's especially situations where there's uh, abuse. You're not expected to just hang around. Okay, that's not what we're talking about here. But for most of us, make no mistake, love does not always feel warm and fuzzy. Right? Like you can love someone and I, that love can bring me zero joy. Like, like parents, when you had little babies and you were up for like the fourth night in a row at like four months old, they just would not sleep. Like I, my love for them did not have a transactional like, yes, I feel great about this afterwards, right? And it's the same with people all throughout our lives. And so when we say things like, I don't have to like them, I just have to love them, in time, I think it leads to us being half-hearted in our love. We compartmentalize our love, and Jesus is calling us to a higher standard. He's saying our love for God that is all-encompassing ought to be a, a pure and good love for those around you as well. I just want to sit with, with, with those answers for a, a minute, okay? Listen, maybe this is the, the heart work you need this morning. I want to ask you a few questions just to think about. Maybe if one of these on the screen... Uh, gives you pause, jot it down. So when it comes to your love for God, is your love for God inconsistent? Yes, absolutely. Is your, is your affection for Jesus based on circumstances in your life? Does your love, do you love God, uh, does your love for God impact every area of your life? When you think about your love for other people, are there individuals, are there people that come to mind that are hard for you to love, that you're, that you're giving yourself a pass on in some way or another? If you're really honest, are there whole groups of people that you are biased against? How is God refining you to love your neighbor? It's important that we reflect on this stuff right? Because it's easy to say, love God, love others. It's easy to put that on a t-shirt, right? Walk around and say, this is what my religion means to me. This is what it means to love, love scripture, love God. This could be a momentous day for you, like the scribe for you in humility to ask God for the strength, for the ability to love like he loved you. Ultimately, though, as we, as we close, this is, this is about what God does, not what we do. And so let's read about the kingdom of God. Point number five, the kingdom of God, verse 32. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher, 
You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all your strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Let's stop there. Again, the, the scribe affirms Jesus as being correct. This is a big deal. This is his place as authority figure in the, the temple system. He had the authority to define words, to interpret law, and he could tell people what a word meant. And then on his approval or disapproval, uh, people, people would actually live a different way. And so at this point, he steps back and says, you know what, you're right. And the scribe kind of adds his own piece to it. He says, to love with all your heart, understanding of your, your strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is, is even more important than the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. It, it's important that we remember locationally where, where is this happening. They are kind of in and around the temple complex. And this is, this is all happening nearby. The people are coming from near and far with their sacrifices and offerings and their animals into the temple. And the scribe says, you know what? Jesus, you're right. Loving God, loving others, it's more important than even what's happening in this building at this moment. And, and then Jesus responds. And when Jesus saw that the scribe answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. In this man's answer, you see he is very close to recognizing what Jesus had come to do. In fact, Jesus basically says, almost, almost. He wasn't there yet. He understood love for God. He understood love for others. And those were central to being a citizen in God's kingdom. He was so close. And the scribe is, is, is tracking along. He loves the law. He is asking the right question. And so, guys, why does, why does Jesus say almost? Why does he say you are not far? Here's what I think is missing. And pay attention because this may be missing for you as well. Some people maybe you, are what I call Christian adjacent, right? Like we, we know people like this, and sometimes they don't even know it. Like some people, maybe you, have a lot of interest in God and even in Christian culture. You just don't realize, though, what Jesus has accomplished on your behalf. You don't understand that God loves you so much that he gave his son for you. And I think this is where most of us miss it. Like, why did Jesus have to die? It's going to happen in a few chapters, the end of this week, Good Friday. Why did Jesus have to die? This dramatic, intense turn of events, torture, a mock trial, crucifixion. What was the point of all of that? And the scribe alludes to it himself. He says, Great stuff, Jesus. Great retort. Great answer. This is actually more important than the sacrifices and burnt offerings. Oh, what was that? Jesus says, wait, wait hold on. What would you say? You almost had it. You almost connected the dots. And you see, Jesus had to die to establish his kingdom here on earth to tr transform our identity from rebels and convicts into citizens and a family. And in and, and the work of his death he completely eliminates this system of burnt offerings and sacrifices. 
And this is what the Christian life has all, always been about. Listen to me. It's been about God's work and not our own. God's empowerment through the Holy Spirit, not our mind over matter. God will see things through, not our will to work. And so listen, this morning, before you walk out of here thinking it's all about loving God and loving others, that's it. That's what the Christian faith boils down to. Love God with everything, love people even when it hurts. Well, I don't know about you, but that sounds kind of impossible work. It seems very pie in the sky, and it may be a great idea in theory, but how does that work and play out over the course of a lifetime? You see, even in sharing and accomplishing the greatest commandment, we must remember it is not on us to accomplish that type of love, that type of work on our own. We must rely on the work of Jesus to model perfect love, which he did on the cross. We must look to the work of the Spirit to sustain our love for him and others the rest of our lives. And this is where the scribe comes up short, and maybe you missed it as well. We're not called to accomplish the task of perfect love. We are called to receive it as a gift and then share it. We must live in that tension that before we understand the greatest commandment, not as a heavy burden, but as a gift to receive. Let me just end with this example. I hesitate to say it, but listen, we aren't that far from Christmas. Now, of course, Christmas as a parent, it really comes more and more about family and, and kids over the years, at least for me. We enjoy the holidays through the eyes of our children. And probably like you, maybe if you're a parent or, or an uncle or, or, or whatever, like you've, you've given kids a bike or a scooter for Christmas before. Has anybody done that before? Anybody given a bike away at Christmas? Okay, uh, listen, um, as a loving dad, how do I give my five-year-old a gift like that? Do I, do I wrap up the box with all the bike parts, uh, bike parts inside and then they wake up Christmas morning and unwrap it and they're like, oh my gosh, a bike, thank you, dad, a bike, awesome, amazing. And I say, hey, buddy, we want to just bless you this year with this bike. And as soon as you assemble it and learn how to ride it, you're going to seriously enjoy that thing, right? Like, you know what? I'll even help you get started. And so I, I take the box, and I pull out my pocket knife, and I, and I open up the box and just open it up for them and sit back on the, on the couch. Go for it, man. Like, this is going to be awesome. You're welcome. What kind of dad would I be if I did that? Is that how I give a bike to a five-year-old? No, of course not. Because some gifts require help to unwrap. And some gifts, like a new bike, need a lot of assembling, right? So they require a patient, loving father to then teach as a follow-up, how do I actually ride this thing? And so, like many of you, I've spent the night before Christmas, like, surrounded by tools, building the bike in anticipation for this moment where, where, where he opens up the, the box or the, the wrapping, and I position it under the Christmas tree, and it's ready to ride, right? That's what I do as a good dad. And so, listen, would you receive this charge this morning from Jesus in the same way? Go and love God. Go and love other people. Love your neighbor as yourself. But remember, it's not on you to accomplish all that work yourself. Understand that you have a heavenly father, 
in the garage with tools who wants to do that work for you. You have a, a father who is running beside you, hand on the seat, who is patiently encouraging you to live in that kingdom reality. He is cheering you on. Love God, love others. And so let's pray and thank him for that amazing gift this morning. Would you bow your heads with me? God, we're, we're thankful for the clarity of this question and, and the answer. God, I'm, I'm just amazed sometimes as we walk through the gospel of Mark how this, this all happened so many years ago, Lord, but it's, it's, for, it's for me, it's for us and our hearts, Lord, that we'd be refined and understand more clearly what you want for us and, and how, how we can love you in greater ways. And so, God, this morning, as we consider these commandments, as I just finished saying, Lord, would you help us remember that this is just not all on us? This isn't a burden for us to carry, that we have to step up in our love for you and for other people, Lord, but we would receive this type of love first, that you would, you would show us that you gave us the greatest example of love when you sent your, your son to the cross. And because of that, we can live differently. God, we're grateful for it. Would you remind us every day? And Lord, I, I, I just pray that you would um, continue to refine us and sanctify us when it comes to how we live out that type of love um, to the people in our family, to the people that we work with, to our siblings, to, to those who we, we find it hard to, to love. God, would you call us and remind us and empower us, Lord, as we, we do that on your behalf. Praise your name. Amen.